Welcome to Encounter Church. I don't know if, about you, but I watched that video, and I want to go get frustrated at something and uh, have a breakthrough. And so uh, I'm glad you're here today. Uh, we missed you last week, and uh, kind of it was a heartbreak uh, to have to cancel the service. In fact, I don't know if it w- went this way in your house, but I had to uh, tell my little girl, seven-year-old Ella, um, that sorry, sweetheart, because of just the conditions and we care about people trying to get to church. We're not going to be able to have church today. And it was kind of tears and weeping in our household. And she said, Daddy, you need to hold it together. And, and I did. And, um, but it was just really sad. And, um, and so it was even sadder this morning um, because this week she's had the flu. And um, poor thing was so excited because this Sunday she was going to get to go to church. And yesterday she had a little bit of a mild fever. And uh, my wife is the preschool director, and we follow rules. And the rule is fever-free for 24 hours because we want to make sure that this environment is a safe and healthy environment for every child that walks in the door. And so this morning, just a special shout-out and love. I love you both. They're watching via online, um, which is a wonderful thing that we have at Encounter Church because if you're not able to make it, if you're traveling, you can just open up the app or Facebook, and there we are. And you just get to transform your living room, your uh, plane ride, wherever you happen to be, into just this place of hope. And so before I talk to you, I just wanted to say, hey, I love you. So glad to see you. See you in a little bit. And, um, and so thank you for being here today. We're going to wrap up our series, Made for Monday. And that video is such an appropriate way because let's just be real. We get frustrated in work, don't we? I mean, I can have those days where I come home and if I had a cat, I'd be tempted to kick it because I'm just frustrated. Because it didn't go the way I wanted it to go. It didn't finish out the week the way I wanted to finish it. The quarter didn't go the way I hoped it was. Uh, for those stay-at-home moms and dads, the, the child in this season is just not cooperating. They're not seeming to listen to that sage, wise advice that you have for them. And you just feel frustrated. And what do you do with frustration? Because I think frustration is pointing to something even deeper beneath the surface. And that very inspirational video hints at that, right? That underneath that frustration is a desire, a desire to be better, a desire to be more effective, a desire to have a greater impact, a desire to make your life count, a desire to make your life make a difference. We get frustrated because we're living with a gap between where we want to be and where we are. And today, I want to wrap up this series by just pressing into, very practically, what do you do with the frustration when you say, yes, I want to be better. Yes, I want 2019 to look different. Yes, I want 2019 to be the best year as I work it. Then what do you do? How do you focus? Where do you focus to break through the frustration and to move towards work that works for you? And so today, I want to look at three areas. Three different areas that I believe that you and I, if we work this this year, we'll find that work begins to work better for us. That if we're willing to lean into that situation, that circumstance, if we're willing to press into these three areas, that we might discover a work that works. It comes from a very obscure place. It's, a, it's a, actually a song in the Old Testament. There's a, a group of songs that we call the book of Psalms. And Psalms is just a Hebrew word for songs, poems. And it was the ancient kind of Jewish song book. It was in the Old Testament, which is the kind of volume one of the Christian scriptures. And the Psalms were a lot like our music today, 
right? When you were growing up, there were songs that when you had a breakup, you listened to it because it could just channel the sadness. It could channel the frustration. When you were in love, right, and you had all this stuff inside of you and you wanted to pick up your phone that was at your home and call Delilah and say, Delilah, I want to sing, just send a shout out to someone, right? I mean, like songs could speak and stir the emotions, but songs also would teach us things, right? I mean, I remember in 1492, Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue, right? And so there are songs that teach us. There are songs that inspire us. There's songs that help us navigate our grief and mourning. And that's very true of the book of Psalms. The primary author is a guy named David who writes most of them. And they give voice to almost every imaginable human emotion and human experience. And some of the psalms even were like that Christopher Columbus rhyme or some of the other many songs you and I learned growing up that taught us something. Psalm 78, which is the passage we're going to be in today, um, Psalm 78 is a teaching psalm. It's a learning psalm. It's a song that you would have heard, you would have been exposed to growing up as a Jewish boy or a girl in the first century and before. It would have been a song that was intended to teach you the history of the nation of Israel. It would begin with the miraculous work of God, and the psalm ends with the, the Israel's great king stepping into the throne. It's a history lesson in a song form, and its intention is to teach Israel, to remind Israel what God has done, but it's the last few verses of this psalm that I specifically want to focus in on this morning because it's in this final portion of the psalm where we transition from the history to, to the great king of Israel, the one who wrote most of these songs, David, that we find the three areas highlighted that you and I can work in 2019 to make work work for us. It begins, or technically Psalm 78 ends with these words, he chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with an integrity of heart, and with skillful hands, he led them. And it's in these final verses that we get this snapshot of David, Israel's great king, Israel's great leader. And it's in his profile, that we see how our own personal experience can be made different. Now, full disclaimer, maybe you won't have something written about you in the history books. Maybe your story won't play out like David, but there are three areas of David's story that I do think transfer, and I think transfer powerfully. And so hopefully, in the course of this, there will be one area that will stand out for you. The first area is in verse 72, we see that it says, and David shepherded them with integrity of heart. When the great king is profiled in these final verses, when God is working through the author to pen these words of Psalm 78, what does he highlight? What is the, the lead foot for David's greatness? It's David's character. With all the great things that David does, it's the character that's the starting point for David's greatness. Not perfection, because anyone who spent time studying King David will tell you he is not perfect. But David's character was being perfected 
He was a man at the core of his heart that genuinely desired to live, to honor in his choices, in his habits, in his attitudes for his life to honor God and to have a solidity of character. This is an area that oftentimes in leadership development or in workplace development gets skipped. In fact, typically the only time character is highlighted is when something happens in the organization or in the institution where there's a collapse or a failure and we react. It's all of a sudden everyone in the organization has to come sit in the seminar where we're going to talk about ethics or we're going to talk about integrity or harassment, right? It's in the failure of character that oftentimes companies, educational institutions decide that character should be taught. But it's always reactionary. When you went to college or you went into the military or you went into your job training, I would imagine that the first day of your courses, the first day of class or the first day with that instructor, they didn't begin with, let me teach you some character traits that are essential for this job. Character gets overlooked, and yet it's at the core. It's the essential. It's the first step moving out of frustration. It's the step that we have to take to move towards greatness in our work. There's an ancient concept of character that I think is really helpful. The ancient, one of the ancient descriptions of character, because this was a focal point for the ancients, was this idea that your character, every choice you made was etching your character. There's this idea that we all start as kind of a marble slab. And with each choice you make, little, big, grand, small, when everyone sees, when no one sees, is chipping away just a little bit, shaping you. And that your character is ultimately what the statue is as a result of those choices that you and I make. I think it's a really helpful frame because it's in that lasting image of greatness. I, I love history. I read way too many biographies about dead people. But one of those individuals that inspires me the most is Abraham Lincoln. He's a man that the more you study him, the more you marvel, not at the choices, which were incredibly brilliant during the Civil War. It's the character of who he was that he went into the Civil War already, that man, because he had this whole life of individual choices and patterns and habits that had etched this greatness, this humility that was essential for him being one of our nation's greatest presidents. Character matters, and this is why it's highlighted first in David's presentation and profile. Now, here's the thing about character I think is really important. In this brief description of David, we get a little bit of a hint at it. We meet David not in the palace. We meet David in the pasture when no one else is watching. Not before everyone is watching, but when no one is watching. Just dumb, smelly sheep. And it's in those places when no one's watching that I believe oftentimes our character most ex is most exposed. It's around those people who are the closest to us that get that part of us. I don't know if you have ever noticed this with children, but every once in a while you'll find that uh, your classroom teacher is describing your child and they're like, they're the most, man, they listen so well. They're so attentive. They're, they they're like the ideal student. They're perfect. And you're like, I'm sorry, are we talking about the same child? Which, which parenting seminar, like what meeting am I supposed to be at? Are we talking about the same kid? Because my kid isn't like what you described as that kid. 
Right? See, from early on, we learn as humans how to perform publicly. We learn how to put our best foot forward. We learn how to be the angels in the classroom or around those people that we want to like us. We learn how to perform for those. But what happens is that we also learn how to have this private person that we are too. And in a day and an age where it is so easy to live with a gap between the public and the private, this is one of the most destructive things that can happen because the larger the gap between your purpose your public and your private persona, the farther you can fall when it's exposed. Right? Think about the, the news stories when business leaders fall or when politicians fall. It is rarely ever about their competency. It's about their character. It's about what they were doing when no one else was watching. And what finally breaks them is what they did in the private is now being put in front of everyone out public. It's one of those things that I noticed very early in my journey that I determined if I was going to be a leader, that I was going to emphasize and focus on making sure there is no gap between my public and my private. That who I am off stage, I think, is actually better than who I am on stage. On stage, you're going to judge me by my speaking ability. Off stage, you will see me in my character. And I, I committed a long time ago, and this doesn't have to be for you, but I think this is underneath it's an important principle for you in this journey that I determined a long time ago that I would live my life like an open book. Because if I live my life like an open book, I would never be afraid for someone to pick up my book and start to read it from the stage or any stage. I have no fear. You can look at any internet website I have been on. I have never deleted any text messages. I have never had a conversation that stays private outside of something that's oriented around counseling that should stay private. Because I recognize if, if I tried to get skillful at having a public and then managing that private, that the greater the distance, the, the more likely and the greater the fall, that would result of it. And so here's my question. Who are you when no one's watching? What do you do when no one is looking at you? And if it was read, if it was stamped on the newspapers tomorrow, would you be embarrassed by what they saw? And if instinctively, if your private conversations, I don't mean when you talk about your gout, right? I mean those moments when, like, I think about this all the time, like with Siri and Alexa, right? How it's only a matter of time if you have Siri or Alexa in your house where one day Siri and Alexa is going to be listening and they're going to send the conversation you're having about that person and all of a sudden you're going to hear messaging Jenny Causey. And it's like everything that you just said, how they were so stupid and how they're self-centered and how they're blah, 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 blah. And it's like sending message now. And you're like, no, you know, or your boss or your coworkers. And I think that we have to be cognizant of how comfortable we get with that gap. And many of us never think about the gap between our public and our private life. 
And I'm saying to you that if you want to see work begin to work for you, whether you're working at home, whether you're in the process of trying to find a job, or whether you're working in a corner office somewhere, who you are is more important than what you will do. And it will be the who that could lead to your fall long before the what you do. And that character is at the core of us being great. And so evaluate who you are when no one's watching. Think through the little white lies and the patterns of deception that are slowly chipping and shaping. Because rarely ever do we lead out with embezzlement or adultery. It begins with a small conversation. It begins with a little bit of a shadow life over here. And that private life keeps growing. And aggressively, aggressively shine light into those private places of life so that no shadow place grows. And if you're diligent about your character, that's great, but that's not the final area. There's a second area that gets highlighted. It says that with skillful hands, he led them. We see not just a man of character in David, we see a man who is gifted, who has an abilities, who has talents, who has skillfulness in his hands. Now, we live in a culture in a day and an age where a lot of us are probably in the world and in the workforce and in the place where our mind is what drives us. But this is, this is thousands of years ago. It's the hands that make you in this world. Kings, even kings, lead through their hands because David's a warrior king. That's what marked kings in this day and age was your ability to lead an army. David was not sitting and strategizing in a chair. He was grabbing his sword and running in the battle. He was leading his men through his example. It was with your hands that you led in this time and age. And what does he have? He has skillful hands. He has competency and ability. And I think this is that second area. If the first area is character, the second area is in your competency. And this is where your focus has to be if you want to continue to grow and develop. Your instinct are what we've been taught and exposed, what we've been kind of modeled for us growing up, was to focus in on our weaknesses, right? Most of you were never sat down by your boss or school teacher and said, hey, I've noticed that you're really good at math. Let's, let's continue to develop that skill. No, in work reviews, in school reviews, growing up and even into adulthood, when you sit down with your boss, if there's a review, what normally happens is, I want to talk about this area of weakness you have. This, this area that you're lacking. We want to, let's put together a plan to develop that, shall we? Right? Most of the time, we've had emphasis on weakness, and yet I think it's, it's actually not as productive. David leads from his skills. He leads out a place of strength, not his weaknesses. And so instead of choosing to focus on your weakness first, choose to focus on your strength. So let me kind of give you two little pithy ways of saying this to unpack the competency portion. First, strengthen your strengths. If you're going to develop and you're going to work this area of your life, you need to strengthen your strengths. Grow in the area where you're already strong because you can make it stronger. Don't spend your energy in this journey just focused on your weaknesses. Which begs the question, do you know where you're strong? Do you know where your gifts are? Do you know what those abilities, those talents, big and small, 
happen to be? Because if you don't know the answer to that question, then you can't work it. You can't develop it. For some of you, it may be just as easy as you thinking about those best moments in those different work environments, whether it was in raising your kids, whether it's in this specific season of life, whether it was in school. But you go back and you find those moments where it was clear that this was an area where you were thriving. It's, it may be as simple as asking those who know you best, hey, what do you think I'm good at? I, don't ask your mom, okay? American Idol and those television shows where people sing, people show up on those shows because their mama told them they were good at something. Don't ask your mom. Okay, I love you, mom. You're probably watching. I was not good at baseball, but you told me I was, right? You lied. Now, so don't ask your mama. She doesn't know. She thinks you're great at everything. Ask someone who is not obligated to lie to you what you're good at. What am I good at? Because... When you're able to answer that question, then you're, then you're in a position to work it, to develop it, to foster it, and to grow in it. If you need help, there's a really helpful book with an online assessment called Strength Finders. And Strength Finders is a really helpful tool to kind of help begin to drill into those areas where you're strong. And I, I, look, if, if you take the test, if you buy the book and you take the test, and you're like, I don't understand it, email me. I love this stuff. Jason loves this stuff. We'll sit down with you, and we'll help you unpack what those strengths can look like in your life. This is a passion point for us because as a team, we leverage each other's strengths. You don't know the areas I am a complete failure at because we have a team that helps to compensate for my weaknesses and for their weaknesses because we bring our strengths to the table. This is what leads to that second component. You do want to weaken your weaknesses. Maybe for some of you, you don't get to be a part of a team like I'm a part of. That's an extraordinary gifted team. It's humbling to be a part of what I get to do. For some of you, you don't have that. And so for you, weakening your weakness is determining those things in your work area, in your parenting, in your marriage that is holding you back from experiencing what you deep down inside know you want to experience. That frustration inside of you, it's pointing to something. So identify the one or two weaknesses. And then ask someone who's good at those weaknesses, teach me how to do that a little bit better. I'm a nerd, okay, full disclosure. I love reading and learning. I came across a website last week that I bookmarked because I'm like, this will get me through the next few years. It was 400 free online classes taught by top universities worldwide. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is the mother load. I'm saying, and I was streaming through that thing. And it was the most random things that none of you would probably appreciate. It was like business negotiation. It was like data science and analysis. It was like understanding and unpacking the psychological nature of resiliency. I'm like, ooh, 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 and I'm like grabbing hold of all these things. Like, we have never lived in a day and an age where if you have ignorance in something, you can find an answer like that. Like, there is no reason. I'm teaching this to my daughter. When someone asks a question, I'm like, that's a great question. Hey, Google. I mean, like, we have no reason to be ignorant anymore because we have the answers on our fingertips or through online classes. And I'm telling you that no matter what your weakness is, this is a testimony to me, no matter what your weakness is, you can weaken it and its impact in your life. You can actually diminish the barrier that it has for you just by developing your area of weakness. 
And if you happen to be on a team, delegate it. Share it. Work together so that you bring your strengths to the team and the others bring theirs. And what happens is a really good team compensates for everyone's weaknesses and strengthens everyone's strength. It's an incredible thing. But this isn't enough. That's just two of the areas. You've got character, and then you've got competency. When David stepped into the kingship, no one had ever seen a king like him. He was extraordinary. Israel at that point had had one king before him, and he was a complete failure. His failure was not in his competency. His failure was in his character as a guy named Saul. And what happened out of David is David has a son who becomes the next king named Solomon. And Solomon becomes one of the wisest men to have ever lived, second to Jesus. And Solomon gives us, through history, a collection of books of wisdom that he wrote in the Old Testament. And one of those books is the book of Proverbs, one of my favorite books. And in Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine 29, is a saying that Solomon used to teach his children the value of work. And it goes like this. It says, do you see a man or a woman skilled in their work? He or she will stand before kings. They will not stand before obscure men. This is Solomon. He's sitting down with his sons and his daughters and he's saying, hey, I want to teach you something. You see someone skilled in their labor, they will not stand before obscure men and women. They will serve kings. Benjamin Franklin, his father, uh, would tell Benjamin this over and over growing up. This was one of the lesson, lessons that Franklin learned growing up here. And this became a life mantra for Benjamin Franklin. And by the end of his life and his biography, what he would write is that not only was his father correct, that he didn't just stand before kings, he had sat and dined with them too. And where does Solomon get this sage advice? Where does Solomon get this little nugget of truth? I think Solomon gets it through the example of his father. Because the third piece of this, the third area to focus in on is, I think, the most important one. It's... It is the secret to this whole process. It was what fueled David and what made David the example that ultimately Solomon would teach his children about when he said the proverb, do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. Because in his case, he became the king. In verse 70 of Psalm 78, it says, he chose David, his servant, And he took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob. The third area is an area of commitment. A commitment to be faithful in the pasture. What do I mean? Where does David's journey begin? It does not begin in the palace. That's where he ends up. On his journey. It begins in the pasture. I don't know if you've ever been in a pasture. A pasture is not quite as nice and as luxurious as the palace. The pasture is surrounded by stinky, smelly sheep 
that do not like to listen to you, who will wander off, who are so poofy that when they go to drink water, if they're not careful, they will start to soak up the water from the river and they will then fall in, which then requires you to jump in to grab the dumb sheep that is self-drowning trying to take a drink of water. That's what you do in the pasture. The pasture doesn't have a comfortable bed. The pasture doesn't have luxurious fabrics. The pasture has the ground, a rock, and the night sky because you don't leave the sheep when you pasture them. You sleep with the sheep that you pasture. And so David, every single night, would pull up a rock and say, oh, that looks like a really comfortable rock to lay my head on. And he would lay down and he would stare at the sky and after the sheep had settled, then he would fall asleep. But he would have to keep one eye ready to open at any point because while the sheep are sleeping, while he is sleeping, wolves can creep in. Lions can kind of sneak into the mix because they're trying to eat the dumb sheep. And as a shepherd, you're penalized if you lose a sheep. You have to be willing to lay your life down for those stupid sheep. That's what you do in a pasture. No one is watching you. No one even knows where you are. And you're surrounded by smelly, stupid sheep. No one's going to say, hey, great job fighting off those pack of wolves that tried to eat that one sheep. Hey, great job diving in that river and almost drowning to rescue that one sheep. No one sees that. No one even cares. And yet, what do we find in David's story? We find David has a commitment already in the pasture. In the pasture, he's being shaped and prepared. His character is being formed. It's in the pasture that David learns to write the songs that one day the nation will sing when he is in the palace. It is in the pasture that David learns to fight and take care of those things that are the most valuable things to him in the world so that one day when he's in the palace, he can stand up to a Goliath. He can stand down an enemy's army. He learned to fight Goliath in the army in the pasture when no one was watching. It's in the pasture that you learn the weight of decision-making and responsibility and the pressure of knowing it's on, on you so that when you step into the palace and they say, what shall we do, king? You say, this is what we're going to do. You learn that in the pasture. And see, I think a danger for us is that many of us are probably in our pasture season right now. And what do we do when we find ourselves in the pasture season? We go back, we kick back, and we say, well, if I was in the palace, I wouldn't make those stupid decisions. If I was in the palace, I'd spend our money better. If I was in the palace, I'd respond this way. I would deal with the conflict in this way. I would make these decisions that way if I was in the palace. If I had the corner office, this place would be run so much better. Oh, if they paid me that way or gave me that title, then I would be X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Problem is, I'm just in the pasture. But if I was in the palace, it'd be different. And I'm saying to you that if you want a picture of who you would be in the palace, all you got to do is look at who you are in the pasture. Because what you're doing today is what you would do tomorrow with that title, with that pay, with that responsibility, with, those, with that workload. If you're not faithful in the pasture, you will never, ever, ever be faithful in the palace. 
do not treat with contempt the pasture season because it's in the pasture season that you learn David's greatest lesson that when you feel underappreciated, when you feel underrecognized, when you feel like no one is watching you, you have an opportunity to gain the one insight that changed David's life. He did not have an audience of none in the pasture. He had an audience of one in the pasture. And when you realize that there is an audience of one, you start to live and serve and guide and parent and do marriage and do singleness and do every single season that you find yourself in. You do that differently in the pasture because the same audience of one follows you to the palace. And not only does he follow you, you will find that in your faithfulness in the pasture, he will actually direct your footsteps to that palace. And I'm not saying that you and I are tomorrow going to become kings or queens, though if you do, let me know. But I am saying that there is a place and a space, there is a spot, there is a person that you can become for that next season, that next chapter of your life. But do not believe that it will just happen when you get there. Become that person now. If you want to be that grandparent that's so nice and sweet and kind and compassionate to your grandchildren, do that for your children today. If you believe you're going to be a person who can handle the weight of decisions and, and financially manage resources, do that today. If you're a person who you believe would treat people differently if you had power and authority but you still treat people badly without it, change today. Because it's in the pasture that we can learn the forge, that commitment of faithfulness. It's in the pasture that you and I can begin to work and to refine our skills and our competency. And it's in the pasture that you and I can grow in our character. And if you and I are willing to, in the pasture, focus on just one of those three areas and work it, then I believe in 2019, you and I, we'll discover a work that can work. Let's pray.